Uh, we're right in the middle of two miracles that Jesus performed in the Gospel of John. Uh, last week we looked at the feeding of the 5,000 and uh, today the, the miracle that we're going to be looking at is Jesus walking on water. And uh, I wonder what you think about miracles. Uh, you probably, if you've been around the church enough, you're probably used to them. Uh, in some ways, the church has kind of become accustomed to calling things miracles sometimes that aren't. Um, we, we tend to be pretty quick to do that. But a true miracle is something which breaks the normal order of things and can't be explained by scientific or natural laws. So here's a good question. Do miracles happen? Do they happen? All right. How good is this? And, and I don't mean the average, everyday kinds of things that we often call miracles. I mean the feeding 5,000 people kind of miracles. The Jesus walking on water kind of miracles. I wonder what your neighbour would say if you went and asked them if miracles actually happened. I wonder what they'd say. You think they'd be with you on it? That would be a good question for you to ask your neighbour or the person that you're connected with that, that, uh, that doesn't know Jesus. Um, now, most of you probably know this, but our culture doesn't go in for miracles. At a popular level, we love the idea of miracles, but we don't really go, into, go in for miracles that much. We like the thought of them, but we've actually been schooled for a really long time that they don't happen, all right? Um, this is the, the reason for this is because we live in a culture um, that teaches and interprets facts through the lens of naturalism. It's the air that we actually breathe. Naturalism is the belief that everything that happens comes from natural causes or properties. And in that system, there can't be miracles. There's no such thing as a miracle. And the vibe that science, unfortunately, at one level, and it's not all science, uh, and all people in science, but one of the things that, that science has had for those who don't want to believe in God or don't believe in God um, is that we've become more mature and advanced than those days where they used to explain things by supernatural uh, explanations. Um, we've, we've kind of had these mythical beliefs dispelled by, uh, by science. Uh, one of the, um, one, one quite famous um, astronomer and cosmologist from last century, he's, he's a very well-known guy, is, um, is Carl Sagan. And uh, Carl Sagan kind of riffed on a uh, hymn um, when, he, when he said, the cosmos is all that is or was or ever will be. He's riffing on a hymn there. And, and here's the bottom line. If the cosmos, if what's created, if what's natural is the only thing that exists, then miracles don't happen. They just don't. Uh, there have been, there's, there's been scientific expert after expert that has championed this view for many, many years. One of the more famous ones that ended up in the media a fair bit was a guy called uh, Richard Dawkins. And uh, Richard Dawkins wrote this. In a universe of electrons and selfish genes, blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt, other people are going to get lucky, and you won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. The universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect. If there is a bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. And you'll get out of bed in the morning with a spring in your step if you remember that right? That's a thing, right? This is, 
He might say this, Dawkins might actually say this, um, but it's a very, very depressing thing. And one thing that we actually note about science is science actually cannot provide uh, for us the answers about the things that we most need to live our lives. Uh, think about the things that are most important to us as humans that, um, that science can't provide the answer to. Purpose, morality, forgiveness, love. Science can't define love. Redemption. You know, the bottom line is this, folks. A naturalistic system is actually, even though they parade themselves often as being people with really open minds, it's actually a very narrow system. If the universe is electrons, genes, physical forces and genetic replication, then miracles don't happen. And unfortunately, what's actually happened, this is, a, this is still the intro, right? Um, Unfortunately, what's actually happened is this view of naturalism has actually made its way into uh, the theological world as well. Um, and we've ended up with a significant number of theologians who have denied the miracles that have existed that exist in the Bible. One uh, quite famous one was an Irish New Testament, Irish American New Testament scholar called uh, John Dominic Crosson. He said this, Jesus did not and could not cure that disease or any other one. I do not think that anyone, anywhere, at any time brings people back to life. You see how narrow this is? You could actually come up to uh, John Dominic Crosson and actually have some evidence for him, but he's just going, it doesn't happen, it never happens. So what happens in a naturalistic uh, uh, belief system is you have to force everything to fit your system. And you have to do violence to what actually sits in front of you, you can see how narrow this is. Um, if you want to know if miracles happen, then what you need to do is you need to work out what you think about the first miracle. You know what the first miracle was? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Here's, here's a question I don't think anyone has been able to satisfactorily answer. If God didn't make everything, design everything, how did everything get here with the complexity that it did? By accident or design? <laughs> and I want to suggest to you this morning, it takes more faith to believe that we've got everything with the complexity that it's got by accident rather than design. Lock in the first miracle that God created the world and the other miracles become possible. And there have been some heavy-hitting philosophers and even atheists who have faced up to the evidence that this place is designed. Now, here's the bottom line. If you lock in this miracle, everything else is easy, all right? You think about the other miracles, piece of cake. <laughs> Creating everything out of nothing, that takes the cake right? And then everything else is downstream of that. So today we're going to have a look at the miracle of Jesus walking on water, which, uh, which shows up in Matthew and Mark and John. All of them occur immediately after the feeding of the 5,000. Uh, John has, has got an account of the walking on water of Jesus. It's really compressed. And so we're going to look at some of the other gospel accounts 
of, uh, of the story. Um, so if you can open your Bibles up, that'll be great. Uh, go to John chapter 6, verse 16. You know, we just come off the back of the, the people. If you have a quick glance at verse 15, the people wanted to make Jesus king and put him in by force. And, um, and so Jesus has basically um, sent the disciples across uh, the lake, the Sea of Galilee, dismissed the, cl- the crowd and, and, then, um, and then went up onto a hill by himself, on a mountain by himself. So John 6, 16 to 21. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they'd rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea, coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. All right, here's where we're going to go today. Let's firstly have a look at this. Jesus has profound effects on people and things around him. And I I want you to see at the start here his effect on nature. The disciples have headed off. Across the Sea of Galilee, they got about 5 k's across, basically in the middle at its widest point. The Sea of Galilee is about 11 k's across. There's a strong wind, uh, a bit of a storm that's kind of coming through. Uh, John tells us the sea became rough because this strong wind was blowing. Matthew tells us that the boat was beaten by the waves. The wind was against them. And what does Jesus do? Well, he just saunters out on the water spit out right now you just need to know on the strength of what i uh, mentioned before that people do all sorts of things with this miracle trying to explain it all right Uh, some people have suggested that what jesus really was doing was walking on the shore (laughs) and the disciples thought he was on the water and i'm like no no because the boat's right in the middle of the sea of galilee and five kilometers is a long way away Uh, it just doesn't it's not sustained and then Back in 2006, an expert says that Jesus actually walked on ice, not water. True story. Um, Let me read you a section from the article. Um, The New Testament says that Jesus walked on water, but a US professor says there could be a less miraculous explanation. You see, same kind of deal. He walked on a floating piece of ice. Professor Doron Knopf a professor of oceanography at Florida State University, says his study found an unusual combination of water and atmospheric conditions could have led to ice formation on the Sea of Galilee, right? So here's an explanation for it, a naturalistic explanation, that Jesus walked on ice in a storm in the middle of Galilee when the wind's blowing. Then you've got another miracle, right? How's he staying on the ice? Now, other than the fact that the textual evidence simply doesn't support a naturalistic reading, the, the answer to the question, can Jesus do this, comes down to uh, another question, and it's this question here. It's, um, who, who was Jesus? If you answer this, uh, you'll make sense of this miracle and every other one that he did. And John's already told us in his gospel in John chapter 1 who Jesus is. In the beginning was the Word, Jesus, the Word was with God, and the Word, Jesus, was God. No, sorry, so, so Jesus was God. He was in the beginning with God. Listen to this. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. 
God and the creator of everything. And this means he can do whatever he wants. Okay, just, just settle that in your heart. If he's God and he created everything, seriously, he can just do whatever he wants to do. Um, you know, you think about it. He, he created the laws of nature and he can override them whenever he wants to override them. That's no dramas to him. He could have walked out on the water handstand style. He could have created a point break, wave and barefoot surf the whole way out to the boat. He could have floated out in the sky. He can do whatever he wants. No amount of postulating or arguing will stop him from doing whatever he pleases. He is Lord of creation and it obeys his command. You have a look back down in John chapter 6 and that's not the only thing that's amazing here. We actually see in verse 21 that when he gets into the boat, immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going because the wind died down. Now, did, did the boat get over to the other side in a, in a third miracle? Perhaps. Although I think probably what happened is the wind died down and all of a sudden they made it to where they were going instead of battling against it. This kind of stuff is easy for Jesus. And here's the bottom line. You ought to walk around and do everything in your life remembering that he can just do whatever he wants in this created world, anything at all. Now, I'm not saying that he's going to pull a miracle for you every five seconds, but he can do that kind of thing whenever he wants. And this is why we need to be people of prayer. Is anyone with me on that? Because he's, he's, he's promised to respond to our prayers. Now, that, if that doesn't inspire prayer, you've got some issues. I can pray for you later. All right? But here's the bottom line. If he can do anything and he does as he pleases and he's the Lord of all creation, we should ask him for stuff. We should ask him to help us, all right? If God can create the world with words, which is what Jesus did, everything else is easy. Take that with you. Here's the second one. I want to have a look at his effect on the disciples, verse 19 to 20. Let's just read it again quickly. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Now, Matthew and Mark actually tell us why the disciples were so scared. Uh, they thought they'd seen a ghost. Now, why did they think it was a ghost? <laughs> right? And here's my question for you. Well, what frame of reference would you have if you're out in the middle of the night, five k's into the middle of a lake, and someone's walking there? Like, that, that would freak you out, right? It would freak me out. Can you understand it? It would have been a bit spooky. But notice the effect in those verses that Jesus has on the disciples once he identifies himself. The disciples battling the winds and the wave, the wind and the wave. A ghost appears, but it isn't a ghost. It's Jesus. And knowing that it's Jesus changes everything. See that? And I want to just pause for a moment and consider something here. This is some low-hanging fruit. Think about what Jesus could have done upon the disciples seeing him. He could have literally just disappeared, vanished, right? I mean, Holy Spirit's called the Holy Ghost by some. He could have multiplied to 30 feet tall and towered over them. He could have walked off. 
could have yelled at him for being stupid. He had a few opportunities to do that. But he doesn't do any of those. What does he say? He says, it's me. Don't be afraid. Now, you need to hear this. God has a keen interest in you not being afraid. Did you know that? He has a keen interest in you not being afraid. And I don't want to move on too quickly. Is you need to let that sink in. I, I read one commentator who said that Matthew just lines up verse after verse through his gospel telling people not to be afraid. <laughs> and Jesus is the one saying a lot of those. It's incredible. Why would the God of the universe, the creator of everything, be so concerned with us not being afraid? Now, come back with me to the story for a minute. Um, here's the picture. Some dudes in a boat, wind in the waves are getting up, struggling to get across. Dude walks along the top of the water and says to the dudes in the boat, um, don't be afraid. Now, does anyone else here think that's kind of weird? <laughs> like, can you visualise it? It's weird, right? It's like, it reminds me a bit of, uh, you know, the Old Testament story where Balaam's donkey talks to him? You know, and there's a part of me that just wants, wants to go, hey, Balaam just responds to the donkey. And it's like, I want to say to Balaam, it's like, can you just take a step back for a minute and just see what is actually going on here. You're having a conversation with a donkey. You know, and, and I, th I feel that a little bit when I think about this, um, this story of Jesus walking on the water and the disciples being in the boat. Because it's, it's, in one sense, it's a fearsome thing. There is someone outside of the boat that doesn't. I mean, while the disciples are under the forces of nature, in a sense, of battling against them is what the, the gospel writers say. There's someone who rises above them. Now, that is both comforting and freaky at the same time. And is anyone with me on that? It just is. It's like, do you guys realize you're talking to a guy who's standing on top of the water right now? You see similar re reaction to this um, uh, with Jesus at other times. Um, you know, there's the story in Matthew, Matthew chapter 17, where um, Peter and James and John go up on a mountain with Jesus and they got to talk to Moses and Elijah. And the, Matthew, Matthew tells us that um, Jesus' face became like the sun and his clothing became bright white, all right? And then God speaks audibly to them. And Matthew 17, 6 to 7, this is what it says, when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, rise and have no fear. You know, I mean, and I assume that they do, right? But at the same time, you just go, really? Like, that is a fearful situation to be in. Or you go to one of, uh, one of John's uh, other books, the book of Revelation, where John sees this vision of Jesus. You can go there with me. I'm just going to read five verses out of it. Revelation 1, verse 12 to 17. Listen to this. Um, this is John, um, the gospel writer. 
seeing a vision of Jesus. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun, see that, shining in full strength. When I saw him, listen to this, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not. What's the first thing Jesus says to John? Fear not. And I go, how? Like that is the most incredible, awesome sight. It, it was fear-inspiring, the sight that he'd seen. What made it okay? Do you know what made it okay? Jesus made it clear to John that he was for him and he was with him. That's what made it okay. And I think each of these three examples I've given you, the disciples in the boat, uh, seeing Jesus walk on water, the, the transfiguration, the, the vision that John has of Jesus in, Re- in Revelation chapter 1, give us a clue as to how fear disappears. And um, let me put it on the screen. You dispel fear with the God who is awe-inspiring and for you and with you. That's how you dispel fear. What's awe? Awe is reverence mixed with fear. (laughs) You know, in your life and in my life, you know the kind of God that we need? We need the kind of God who can walk on water. We actually need the kind of God who can scare us a bit with His power and what He can do. There's a great... um, conversation that goes on uh, speaking of talking to animals in the line the witch in the wardrobe where the kids in the line the witch in the wardrobe are having this conversation with the beavers i'll read you a section of it uh, aslan is is the line that represents jesus aslan is a lion the the lion the great lion oh said susan i thought he was a man is he quite safe i shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. You know, we, we need a God who is big and strong, can walk on water, can create the universe with a word for all of those struggles that we have. But you know, what we need to know is that this God is for us and with us. One who would walk up to us and say, don't fear. You know, God's presence and His closeness is, is not always welcomed. But I'll tell you something, for those who love Him, oh, He can come as close as He wants. <laughs> All right? For those who know what He re- is really like, He can come as close as He wants. And do you know something? If you want to dispel fear in your life, you're going to need to operate in both of those two. You're going to need to remember that God is awe-inspiring and that He's for you. And he's with you. If you have a moment where fear and anxiety takes over, it's because one or both of those have shrunk, been corrupted. Third thing today, see, his effect on nature, 
His effect on the disciples, his effect on Peter. Can you, um, in your Bibles, just go across to Matthew 14, verse 28? Uh, we're just going to read um, from there. I'd love for you to see it. Uh, Matthew's Gospel is the only Gospel um, that, that actually talks about this interaction that Jesus has with Peter on the water. I mean, John's Gospel just says that Jesus gets in the boat and they arrive at their destination. Um, and so uh, what I want to do in this last point is just take a little detour and duck into Matthew uh, and have a look at Matthew 14, verse 28 uh, to 31. There's four verses here that talk about Jesus' interaction with Peter. The first two are absolutely stunning. Amazing. Here's the first two. You can read it in your Bibles here or on the screen. Peter answered. This is after Jesus saying, it is I, don't be afraid. Peter answered. Peter answered. Lord, if it's you, command me to come out to you on the water. And he said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. Now, Peter's terminology there, I mean, I think on the strength of the context and what you can see in the other Gospels in Mark and in John, Peter's not really testing Jesus. He's kind of saying, since it's you, uh, the, the disciples knew that it was him. Um, you know, the effect of Jesus' self-revelation would have already been in play, I think. Um, but here's, here's the key thing, and this... This has got a lot of relevance for us. Peter's saying to Jesus, if it's you, you can make me do something that I can't do. You see that? If it's you, you can make me do something that I can't do. And I want you to notice a couple of things about Peter's request. Here's, here's the first thing. He calls in Lord. He knows that Jesus is the boss of everything. Um, and, and the bit that I just love about this is... He didn't say, Jesus, if it's you, I'll be able to run 100 metres south. <laughs> All right? He didn't say that. What did he say? He said, if it's you, call me to come to where? To you. I mean, that tells you something, right? Not just the shore, not a 100 metre dash. He wants to go to Jesus. And he knows that Jesus can make him come to him. And he does. He gets out and he walks on water. There is something about who Jesus is and the power he has which changes Peter. It changes who he is and what he can do. This is another way of uh, saying what Peter said. Jesus, if it's truly you, then you can help me do the impossible. And I want to say this to you, <laughs> Jesus has this effect on people. He has this effect on people. When, um, when my boys were young, I, uh, I used to teach them a bunch of uh, some kind of Sondergill catechism, right? And you just ask them questions about God and then teach them what the answer is to it. And one of the questions I used to ask uh, my boys was this, uh, how strong can you be if Jesus helps you? You know what the answer was? Strong is Jesus. That's how strong you can be if Jesus helps you. This is the effect that Jesus has on us. And I'll, I'll just ask you this morning, what are you facing at the moment? What are you facing? What impossible thing is before you at the moment which you know Jesus has led you to? What are you saying to yourself in your heart of hearts? Can't do it? 
too hard, it's pointless. This one's going to take me out. I got through all the others, but this one's going to get me. I can't see any way this is going to happen. Now, I want to say something to you, and I don't want you to hear me saying it's a word of faith statement, all right? Um, as though our words can activate the power of God. That's not what I'm about to say. But what I do want to do is I want to speak to your expectations this morning. You know, what do you expect to happen and how do your expectations shape your view of God and the troubles that you look at? Your expectations are critical. You see, Peter was so persuaded by who Jesus was that he had no doubt Jesus could come and make him do something amazing. Right? Could you say that today about the things that you're facing? Would, would that be the expectation inside of you, is that if God's taken you to something that, as the old saying goes, you're stuck between a rock and a hard place, it's impossible, would you say... In a sense, along with Peter, Jesus, if it's truly you, then you can make me do the impossible. Maybe you need to say it along with Peter. <laughs> and if you do, don't, don't say it as a wish. I wish that this could happen. Say it with confidence. Because if God truly is taking you to a place that's impossible, then he'll carry you through it. He'll make it happen. Unfortunately, it's, it's not the end of this story, right? Those two verses. Um, unfortunately, the, the next two are more famous probably than the first two. The first two is amazing because, you know, the thing that I think is, is I just go, well, where's the rest of the disciples? I'm still in the boat. It's like, who would you rather be? Would you rather be Peter that has a crack and, and, and just banks on Jesus being able to do something or stay in the boat? That's an interesting question, isn't it? I wonder which one you'd pick. Well, we all know what happens next. Um, you know, and the next two verses tell us about how fear actually dispels faith. Let's, um, let's just have a read the right-hand side there. When Peter saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Well, what happened? What went wrong? Remember what we just looked at, that um, the diagram with two circles on the screen. Remember that, um, that knowing that God is truly awesome and knowing that he is with you and for you are critical of the dispelling fear. But here we've got fear dispelling faith how did that happen well similar kind of way um but kind of the flip side fear dispels faith by telling us our enemies are sovereign and we are on our own see that it it, it always works like that uh, matthew fourteen thirty. when he saw the wind he was afraid the wind and the waves and the water became the biggest thing for him came the biggest thing for him you know and at some level uh, this can happen to us it's like well god's at least disinterested or at worst unable to handle the complexity of what's going on the other one is uh we we end up thinking that we're on our own 
And that, that's what fear does, right, when it malfunctions. There's, there's a fear that helps to focus us on things that are important. But when fear and anxiety kind of malfunction, um, what, what happens is we end up thinking that no one's able to manage this problem except for us. No one else can do it properly. We're the only one that can deal with it. And so we get to work trying to manage it, but it's too big. And, and who knows that this happens? You get to work trying to manage it, it gets too big, and the further you get in, the more you realise that there's too much to control, and you just keep spinning up into more and more anxiety because the thing's much bigger and much more difficult to control than what you realise at the start. And you get tired, anxious, and angry. Anyone know what I'm talking about? Is it just me? <laughs> I know this. And what happens? Well, kind of the same thing that happened to Peter. You start drowning. That's what happens. You start drowning. Do you know what it is to drown? Ever reached a similar point to Peter? Where you're going down? And all of you... Your best laid plans of mice and men, as the saying goes, have just fallen by the wayside and you can't control this thing and it's too big and you're tired, anxious and angry and all you've got left is a cry like Peter had. That's a good cry, isn't it? Verse 30, But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. I wonder if that's anyone here today. You're in a situation like that. I want you to notice something. Um, what, what is God's heart toward his children? And they lose sight of him, think they have to solve it, and their enemies get sovereign in their mind. What is God's heart? What is God, God's heart when, when we've embarked so well on this amazing journey and we did it so well for so long? But then we kind of sink toward the end. There was, there was a miracle. Do you, do you get that? Like, there was a miracle happening. There was something amazing happening. And then all of a sudden, you started to sink. You started to, started to drown. What's God's heart? Well, he saves him. But, but you have to be ready to admit your inability to get out of the trouble yourself. This is a... This is true not just for Christians. This is true for if there's anyone here today that doesn't know Jesus, you, you need to get to the point where you just go, I can't get myself out of this trouble. I need God to get me out of this trouble. I want to ask this question, perhaps a, an odd question, but I think it's a good one. How, how close did Peter get to Jesus? Well, like a, I don't know. I'll tell you something. Um, verse 31 says, Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him. So how close did he get? Within arm's reach of Jesus. Right? And so, you know, Peter's a sinner like us. He doesn't get things right and he's got weaknesses, but he did pretty well. <laughs> Didn't he? He did pretty well to get that close. But... He lost it at the end. And what we see here is not Jesus commanding some kind of 
piece of ice to come up underneath him. I jest. Or just some miraculous thing whereby he levitated. This is a personal rescue. This is Jesus reaching down with his hand and grabbing him. Peter didn't drown. Jesus was on top of the water. You notice something here. The truth of who Jesus was and that he was there for Peter didn't change when Peter started to drown. You see that? It just didn't. It never changes. You know, and here's, here's the bottom line. When you lose track of who Jesus is and you start, to dr- you start to drown, who Jesus is and his heart for you never changes. <laughs> never changes. And, and I want you to hear me. If, if you're going through a really hard time right now I want you to hear me I want you to I want you to hear me I want this to go right deep down Um, Jesus is not going to stand by and watch you drown he doesn't do that it will feel like you're going to drown and you'll feel like you're going under for the third time but he will not he's not the kind of person that stands by and watches his people drown that's an evil person You'll get in tight spots and it'll feel like you're going to drown and you're going to probably even take on some water sometimes. But he'll never let you drown. Well, how did Peter get back to the boat? Uh, The text doesn't really say. They didn't swim. Matthew 14.32 says, And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. Do you know what I reckon it implies? He walked back with Jesus. That's what I reckon happened. He walked back with Jesus and then they climbed into the boat. Do you believe that? If you're in a spot now, a hard spot, do you believe that about the spot that you're in at the moment? You might feel like you're drowning. You're going to walk back? Do you believe that? You're going to walk over it. That's what we're doing, people. We are walking over stuff. (laughs) Jesus is of the kind of person that we don't drown in things, we walk over them. Do we get caught sometimes? Do we get stuck? Do we take on water? Does it feel like we're going to drown sometimes? Yes, it does. Do you believe that Jesus is going to make you walk over it? Well, you better, because that's what he does. We're going to sing. I wonder if you'd stand with me and I'm going to pray. And we'll sing to the Lord and then uh, pray a blessing on you. If you, um, if you need some reminding of these things, you need to... Uh, have someone help you to cry out to the Lord, then uh, find someone that you know, come down the front, um, one of the community group leaders, deacons, elders, anyone. If you love Jesus and you know someone who comes down the front here, you can come down and pray for them. Um, Join them in crying out to the Lord. Let's pray.
Jesus, we are uh, people who are, are prone to fear. The most frequent command in the scriptures is do not be afraid or some variation of it. You, uh, you know our tendencies. Psalm 103 says you know that we're dust you know our weaknesses it's amazing to me that you would so repetitively say to us don't be afraid and also that you your person who you are be so have such a powerful effect on us that we would do some crazy things. Because <laughs> we know who you are and we know what you can do with us. We know what strength you can give us. So I've got to pray for, for anyone today who will put their hand up and say, I'm drowning. I can't imagine a situation where I'd be standing on top of this again and climbing back into a boat. Got to pray today that you would remind them of your uh, how how awesome you are, how great you are, and also that you'd remind them that you're with them and you're for them. it says in Romans 8, if God is for us, who can be against us? And it seems like there's lots of things that can be against us, God, but when we know who you are and we know that you're for us, everything else shrinks to its correct size. God, make us a people who expect you to do wonderful things with us because of who you are and how you're going to move in us and move through us. God, make us a, a church of uh, risk takers. God, I ask that you would make us a church that is like Peter. We believe deep down that because of who you are, we can do things we can't naturally do. And God, um, inevitably, probably, we're going to have moments where we'll be like Peter in losing our focus and not seeing things clearly and truly. And uh, so we just thank you that in all those moments, you will always be within arm's length of us. And you won't organize some kind of remote rescue. It'll be you that will be doing it. And you'll you'll stop us from drowning. Thanks for your heart for us. Amen.